This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. For our next speaker, we're going to continue in the clinical realm and we're going to talk about something that we see in the emergency department a lot and something that's a very difficult patient population uh, for us to help and for us to try to figure out what the heck is going on, and that is cyclic vomiting syndrome. Uh, oh, sorry, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. They're different. And we have to speak with us about that. Uh, our clinical pharmacologist in the emergency department at Swedish, and also the chair of the Emergency Medical Minute, the intelligent Miss Rachel Duncan, Dr. Rachel Duncan. Thank you, Don. Um, I think the only profession that can nerd out harder than toxicologists are pharmacists. So, Brett, I thought your presentation was great, so thank you for that. Um, I definitely appreciated the G-protein coupled receptors. I remember that research in college, so it brought me back to the mice. Um, but yeah, I am going to talk today about cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And this is something that is a little bit controversial, I think, um, especially among consumers, um, because it's always hard to tell someone that has consumed something every day of their life for the past however many years that it may be causing them to have this very acute, very um, uh, medically taxing trying syndrome of cyclic vomiting. And all of us in medicine have dealt with how difficult it is to treat patients that present with cyclical vomiting. It's incredibly hard to treat. A lot of our classic antiemetics don't necessarily work. And that is true also for that caused by um, cannabis. And so about 10 years ago, we started seeing this coming into the ERs and into the clinics. And that is when um, medical marijuana started to be legalized, and particularly in states where recreational marijuana is legalized. And what we do know about it is basically defined exactly by what it's, what it's called. So it does cause hyperemesis. So it's going to cause you to be very nauseous and throw up. It is a syndrome associated with what we think is cannabis use. And so what I'm going to talk about today are the theories behind that. And I call them theories because it is not fact, and I want to make that very clear. Um, we don't actually know. Because this is a, a Schedule One substance, it's incredibly frustrating. We can't really study it. And so we don't know what actually causes cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. We just know that when folks come in with this and they are chronic everyday users over years, it is associated with this syndrome. And we do know that stopping or reducing how much you consume can lead to reducing how often you have this syndrome or can stop it altogether. So I'm going to talk about a couple of the theories behind that. So there are three different phases associated with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So we have the prodromal phase, which is typically a few days leading up to the acute phase. And that is when folks start to feel very nauseous um, and they start to have abdominal pain. Now, the acute phase is somewhere between 48 and 72 hours in length. And this is often 24 hours into this is when the patient arrives to the doors of the, e of the ER saying, I cannot keep anything down for the past 24 hours. I've tried everything I can at home. I continue to retch up to 10 times an hour. Nothing's coming up anymore. What can you do for me? 
And as healthcare providers, it's incredibly frustrating because you want to be able to help your patient. There's nothing worse. I'm a sympathetic puker. There's nothing worse than seeing someone else puke. Like, you just want to help them. And you think of your classic anti-emetics, my nurses, right? Your Zofran, your Phenergan, your Compazine, and they do nothing for these patients. And even if you do control the patient, you send them back out, and within 24 hours, they can bounce back into the ER saying, I'm still having these symptoms because it lasts for two to three days. You then go into recovery phase, but we call it cyclical vomiting because guess what? They will arrive on your doorstep month after month. When you look at these patients, they have multiple patient visits to the ER for the same thing. And it's all in, in this patient subset of population, it's associated with cannabis use. So a couple things we do know about the syndrome. It's associated with the amount of cannabis that you consume and over time, how much you have consumed. And so those are the two things that we do know. Now, I'm going to nerd out just a tiny bit, so bear with me. But those compounds that Brett was talking about is sort of the theory behind why this can happen. So we have THC, right, the most common compound, psychoactive. That's really the one that most people think about. And if you're a recreational user, and even a medical user, likely the THC is the highest content in whatever you're using. Um, and so going in and talking to those patients, oftentimes it's a conversation of where do you get your marijuana? Where is the dispensary? And do you know the content of it? The other compounds that we talk about a little bit are CBD and then CBG. Um, so cannabidiol and cannabigerol. And so these three compounds are really the three we think about. And as a pharmacist, I really think that most compounds in the right dose can be beneficial in some way. So almost anything can be a medicine if it's used appropriately. On the flip side, any compound used too high can one, cause toxicity or harm, or two, cause side effects. And so that's the same thing for each of these compounds that are found in cannabis. So THC at low levels is an antiemetic. It hits CB1 receptors in the brain, that central chemoreceptor zone, and causes decreased nausea, which is great. If you go to too high of doses, it starts activating those CB1 receptors in your intestine. That causes what we call gastroparesis. So that just means backing up of the contents of your stomach. Those start to back up, you're no longer hungry, you stop eating, you then start vomiting because your body can't process it. So there, that is one theory, is that your THC level gets so high that what's going on in your intestines completely overrides what's going on in your brain, and so the emetic or nauseous effect of THC comes out. So some of the counseling points that we do based off of this theory, my nurses know, I'll go in and chat with a patient and just say, where do you get your, your marijuana? Do you know what's in it? Could you go back to your dispensary and talk to them about lowering the amount of THC that's in the compound? Could we also talk to them about maybe getting a compound that has CBD in it? So CBD is actually a much more interesting compound to me because that's really what's being studied for pain, for MS, for DSM-4 disorders, um, for some oncology indications that also has antiemetic properties. Again, at too high of doses, it's going to have the reverse effect. But at low appropriate doses, therapeutic doses, it's a wonderful agent. It's anti-anxiety, it's anti-emetic, it helps with pain. And my nurses know I love talking about CBD. So if you can go in and chat with a patient and say, hey, do you know what you're getting at the dispensary? 
is it only THC? Let's bring that down a little, bring the CBD up to an appropriate level and see if you can continue to consume but not land here once a month in the ER. The other option that you can have with that conversation is cessation, but that is often a much harder subject to approach with patients. We all know. It doesn't matter if it's cannabis or alcohol or cigarettes. That's incredibly hard conversation to have with a patient. I think that the other side of the theory of what folks are consuming in higher amounts and in consistent quantities is what else goes into growing that marijuana. So besides the compounds that are actually naturally in the marijuana that we just talked about, so THC, CBD, CBG, the list goes on, how do we grow things in the United States? When it is industrialized, right? I grew up on a farm, I know how this works, so we use things called pesticides. Now not all pesticides are harmful, it's kind of a misleading term, but some pesticides are. If you, I'm sure Brad is very familiar in toxicology with organophosphate toxicity, right? So a very cholinergic response that could probably match how some of these patients are presenting. So because this has become something that where you have marijuana farms, where people are trying to grow more in smaller spaces, be more efficient, that's what we do in the United States, right? We try to do more with less and make more of what we have. They're also going to create shortcuts, and some growers may not be doing it as responsibly as others, or maybe using pesticides that are on the fruits that you eat every day. Now, if you ate that fruit every day for years and that built up in your system, could you have some of these side effects that this patient is presenting with when you think about the uh, cholinergic side effects? Absolutely. So, I think if you just take a step back and look at it as a compound, Unfortunately, the answer is still stop doing whatever you're doing, right? We know it's causing it. It's really hard to have that conversation with a patient because it hangs out in your fats like Brett talked about. You're not going to feel better immediately. You might feel better within a week. You won't feel completely better for 30 days. Can you imagine telling a patient to stop doing something that they've done every day of their life for the past decade? And by the way, you won't feel better for 30 days. That's incredibly hard conversation to have with a patient. But we do know that it is causing an issue. So maybe you can go in the room and one, have the conversation like I talked about earlier about the content of your marijuana. And then two, where do you get it from? Do you know that it's being responsibly farmed and sourced? Do you know the contents of pesticides in it? I was having a conversation earlier today with our patient, Lauren, who will be up here later about this. And there are standards in some states for what levels of different pesticides can be in these types of um, things that we consume. That we have those same standards for the foods that we consume. And we have even stricter standards in some states for cannabis. And so are, is the dispensary where you're getting what you're consuming meeting those standards? And that is also a conversation that you can have with your patient at the bedside. Now, I will say not every patient is willing to be forthcoming about what they use, how much they use it, and how we can quantify it. But hopefully you've taken something away from this where we really just need to take a step back, have a conversation with our patient about what they're consuming, not bring any preconceived notions to the bedside, but meet them where they are and say, I know that this is something that's important to you. How can we make it so that it's not causing you harm, though? Okay, and then you're still getting the benefit that you perceive or are getting from it. Um, so that's cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. I'm just going to finish up briefly talking about treatment because I'm a pharmacist, so I love my drugs. 
I'm kidding, don't do drugs. Um, and in general, I actually like to not prescribe a lot of things and do other um, psychosocial and you know, lifestyle modifications. But in general, if these patients present, your Zofran, your Phenergan, your Compazine is not necessarily going to be effective. And that's frustrating as a provider and a nurse when this patient is constantly retching. So a couple of medications that we have found to be more effective. The first one is haloperidol. Now, this is thought to be effective um, because it's going to reduce, reduce the amount of dopamine in your brain and possibly um, kind of reduce the conduction that's going into um, the vomiting center of your brain. And so that is why we think that um, haloperidol works. If you are a prescriber that's been around a little bit longer, you probably remember droperidol, right? That got pulled from the market. Kind of same concept, okay? Hit it from a centrally acting receptor and you can go ahead and reduce their nausea. So rather than going straight to Zofran or Compazine, a lot of my nurses will ask for a very low dose of haloperidol. Instead, start there for our patients and try to get their symptoms under control. Now the last theory in all of this is what is the learned behavior by these patients? What do they say that, they, that is the only thing that helps relieve their symptoms before they came into the hospital? Hot showers. I did a, a med review and a review of patients that presented to um, where I work in the ER, uh, patients presenting with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And over a third mentioned that they had tried hot showers, that's the only thing that helped. Oftentimes they'll run out of hot water and that's when they come into the ER. Now the theory behind this, love the theory comment, um, it hits the TRPV1 receptors in your periphery. You'll remember that tomorrow, I think. And basically, the only, um, the only thing that hits that is scalding hot water at 109 degrees Fahrenheit. And that is thought to be connected to reducing nausea. Now, what is the other thing that we can use medically that also hits that same receptor that we now stock in our ER? Capsaicin topical, right? So made from hot peppers. That is the only other compound that hits the TRPV1 receptors. So when these patients come in, we typically start with fluids. We give them, we'll probably try Zofran just because it's a habit. Um, we'll give them a low dose of Haldol and then we'll grab some capsaicin topical, put on your gloves and apply it to the stomach where they're um, saying, this is where I'm nauseous. And especially for those patients that said that hot showers helped them. So capsaicin is a treatment option. Again, these are just gonna be case reports or case studies out there. Can also be a diagnostic tool. If you have a patient insisting, no, I do not consume, and you don't have, and you don't have a urine tox to get at, oftentimes if you apply it and that, um, those symptoms decrease, we think of that as more a diagnostic tool that yes, we probably think this is cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome because it helped. So both diagnostic tool and treatment. So take away from this when your patient comes in, make sure you take care of them, fluids, Haldol, capsaicin, try to have an open conversation with them about how they can continue to meet their goals with their cannabis use, but not end up in your ER with the cyclic vomiting syndrome once a month. So, cool, any questions? All right, Don.